this next class is going to deal with fellowship and grace, and it's a family duo that's teaching today. We actually have two family duos that are going to be teaching. So my wife, Ashley, is going to come up, and she is going to talk on fellowship. And um, she has been on the mission field in Haiti, and she has gone to Bible school also. So, And she is the daughter of uh, my dad, Gary Longgardner, who's going to teach on uh, grace, and he has, he is seminary. <laughs> and so he's going to teach on that. So she's had the opportunity to sit under him. So it's going to be Ashley first in fellowship, and then uh, Gary is going to come and talk on grace. So bef um, before we get uh, going, let's just go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you are here, and we just ask that you just bless this meeting that we have, and I thank you for this class. I pray that the truths that will come out of here will encourage us to go search deeper into your word. Uh, we're not here to listen to our sermon. We're here to just know the things that we need to know so that we can go deeper into your word, get to know who you are, and get to know who we are. We thank you and we honor you for this time and opportunity. And uh, we're glad that we get this opportunity to do this. Some people don't ever have such a chance, but here you are. You have blessed us with and so we are grateful. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask you all these things. Amen. All right, without much further ado, here's Ashley. All right, so when I teach, I like maintaining a classroom style. So I'm going to ask you questions. I would like you to answer them. Just be loud. Not, you don't need to raise your hand. You can just respond with the answer. So first, today we're going to talk about fellowship. Now, if you have your workbook here, this is the first thing that's under week two. And you can take notes there. And then later on, there'll be grace where you can take notes on that. So today we're going to talk about God's outline for fellowship, the early church as a model, the true definition of biblical fellowship, and the role of community, or fellowship is what we're going to use for that word today in our lives right now. So biblical fellowship modeled throughout the New Testament gives us a blueprint for the role of community in our lives. So we talk a lot about community. If you've been at New Song for any length of time, you've probably heard a lot about groups and how we care about community. Um, New Song Cares is there to care for people in our community. So why do we care so much? Why does God care about community? So that's what we're diving in today. It's one of the pillars of our faith, but why is it one of the pillars? So first, we're going to really start this journey in the book of Acts in the Bible. So this is where I would like some of your feedback. Does anybody know where Acts is in the Bible? Acts, yes. So Acts, an introduction to Acts would be through the Gospels, the, the, the life of Jesus. We see what he's done. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected. But Acts actually begins with Jesus still here with us. So if you open the book of Acts, Jesus is still here. It's before his ascension back into heaven. And he is talking to the disciples and kind of getting them ready for what they're doing. So that's chapter one. But the rest of the book of Acts is all about how the early church begins. And so this is where we can look and we can glean from how are we supposed to live today. Now, our last discipleship class, if you weren't here, I recommend that you go listen to it online. Um, but our last class talked about how to study the Bible. And one of the things that we talked about is there are things we can look at in the Bible. And just because they did it a certain way, it doesn't mean that we need to literally do it exactly the way they did it, as much as glean what is the principle of what they're talking about. So we're going to be talking a lot about the principles of what the early church did, not necessarily that we're going to copy and paste that into our modern world today. So I'm going to introduce you to the believers in the book of Acts in the words of Pastor Tony Evans. Acts records what happened 
when the Holy Spirit's power infused the church. That makes the book critical because it is the blueprint for the church today. It reveals how the church functions when not filled with the Spirit and what happens when the Spirit fills the church so that it explodes with power and kingdom authority. We see what we are supposed to do and be today as the church of the Lord Jesus. So Acts starts with this promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives it to his disciples to say, wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give the Holy Spirit to you. And so as Dr. Evans says there, we really see this contrast between the, the believers kind of being this um, misdirected, not sure of themselves place of ministry, but when they received the Holy Spirit, it empowered them. It lit up the church and the, ch the church just duplicated like crazy. So in Acts chapter 2, it begins with the day of Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. So what we're going to talk about today is how Acts patterns for us how we can be in fellowship after the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So what we are going to talk about are things that were necessary for us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't do it within our own strength. If you have kids, if you you have friends, if you have a spouse, you know that it's sometimes hard to be in fellowship with people because people aren't the same. And so everything we're talking about needs grace, which my dad will talk about later. We need the grace to operate in it in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So let's find a definition of fellowship in the Bible. So we're going to start in Acts 2.42. It says, now they were steadfastly continuing in the teaching of the apostles and in the fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers. Now that says steadfastly continuing. Another version says they devoted themselves to these things. So this is something that was important, something that they lived out um, of utmost importance. It wasn't something they, they casually did. Devoted themselves is this picture of persisting, of persevering in, and continuing to be steadfast in. So sometimes it wasn't maybe always fun but they committed themselves. Just like Pastor Josh, if you were in there today, generosity doesn't happen by accident. Neither does being in fellowship or doing any of these things. They were per persevering in doing it. So looking at Acts 2.42, that word for fellowship is where we get the definition of what the, what the Bible means, what the Lord means by fellowship. It's the word koinonia, and this word appears 19 times in the Greek New Testament. In the NASB Bible, it's translated as fellowship 12 times, as sharing three times, and participation and contribution twice each. This passage of scripture goes on to say, with one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts and to break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. So koinonia is that blueprint we're looking for of what does fellowship look like? It's this picture that we are given in. Um, again, Tony Evans says, to be in koinonia is mutually sharing the life of Christ within the family of God. So we have to start for a minute to talk about how are we known? How, how do we identify ourselves? So if we are Christians, does anybody know what the word Christian actually means? Christ-like? So to be a Christian is one walking in the way of Christ or after the way, and it's essentially to be like Christ. In some places you'll even hear it was kind of termed as a little Christ, that you look so much like Christ that someone could mistake you for being like him. So if we go on to Acts 11:26 again, this blueprint we're looking at, it says, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, 
the disciples were first called Christians. So we get the word Christian, that identification of disciples as Christians from Acts. And we know that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has come, but it has gone, and the new is here. So early church believers looked like Christ because their minds and their hearts were set on the things of Christ, and they were devoted to doing those things. So looking at this passage of Acts in chapter 2 and on, we see marks of the koinonia kind of fellowship. First, we have an uncommon kind of unity. I want to read a passage of scripture that I find fascinating. It's in Acts 18 verses 24 to 26. It says, a man named Apollos came to Ephesus. He was a Jew born in, in Alexandria, Egypt, and a terrific speaker. He was eloquent and powerful in his preaching of the scriptures. He was well educated in the way of the master, that means in the way of Jesus, and he was fiery in his enthusiasm. Apollos was accurate in everything that he taught about Jesus up to a point, but he only went as far as the baptism of John. He preached with power in the meeting place, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they told him the rest of the story. Another translation says that they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, something that's fascinating about this to me is, can you imagine Pastor Josh gets up and he preaches a sermon and he's, he's, he's accurate. He's not amiss. He's not off. He's accurate. But someone hears him and they decide, I'm going to do it honorably, but I'm going to take him aside and say, you're missing these things you have to be in unity. You have to think about somebody hiring yourself to be able to receive that. And we see that in the early church, that it wasn't a place of I'm so proud of how, who I am because I'm an eloquent, great, educated speaker, or we have this knowledge that you don't, and we're just going to bestow it upon you and bless you. But we see people that were so aware that it was about more than them, and so they could then be united. First Peter 3, 8 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. This unity has purpose. John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23 says, this is Jesus, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, that's talking about being united, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may come and become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. So with this koinonia kind of fellowship, when they were together, a mark of that that you could recognize it by was they were united. They were one, as God had called them to. Another mark was that there was an uncommon kind of vision. Again, looking to the story of Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, they were here to further the message of Jesus. They weren't doing something that was about them. They had this vision of how do we spread the news of the gospel throughout the world. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12 says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So instead of it being Apollos versus these other two, they were all members of the same mission. They were all on the same mission. And lastly, there was an uncommon kind of giving. Back in Acts 2 again, verses 44 to 47, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So we see that they 
no longer had this high value of money. If I saw a need of someone else that was in the same body as me, that, that was my responsibility. So I, they sold their things. They were willing to have a common purse. So once again, this is going back to what we talked about in the last class. This is a principle. This doesn't mean that all of the Christians in the global church need to live out of a common purse. It's the idea that your money is available to what God would have you do and that your brother's need is your need. So these three things, an uncommon kind of unity, an uncommon kind of vision, and an uncommon kind of giving were all marks of the koinonia kind of fellowship that brought them into one accord. It was that one accord in practice. First John 4, 11 through 13, I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but that's what discipleship's about. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So we see in the Acts church that they received the Holy Spirit and they were able to walk into doing these things that are not easy to do. It would be not be easy for many people to make their funds available to other believers just to say, okay, so you're maybe you have a lot of debt, I'm going to help you pay that off. Now, again, that's why we're talking about the principle. You operate by the Holy Spirit, but they no longer were really self-interested. They were interested in what God was doing. So fellowship has benefits. We can see that. Number one, it builds the believers up. So as they met together, they were able to spur each other on to good works. They were able to spur each other on to what God had called them to do. As you go through Acts, you'll see that different people went out um, on their assignments, essentially. And they were able to encourage each other to walk in that. If you've ever been in an isolating season, you might experience that kind of the things that God's put inside of you kind of get a little bit dim. But when you're around other believers that they call that out in you and they they stir that up in you, that's what it is to build each other up. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So we see that throughout the New Testament after this church is begun and starts being built, we see that this is a crucial part of how we are meant to live. That fellowship is not just this extra thing where we're going to operate by grace and mercy and love and faith, but then fellowship is kind of like this bonus thing that's going to help us. It's a crucial part of how we walk in those things. Fellowship is required. Number two, another benefit is it's a part of the framework for prevailing. And this is a big statement, so I want to give you a scripture for this. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 through 12 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Now, there's a lot of lessons that come out of that. But what I want you to see today is when you're with somebody else, when you're with other believers, you have the ability to stand in a way that's hard for you to stand when you're on your own. It's difficult to stand and be steadfast when there's nobody else stirring you up. Fellowship is part of the backbone of how you walk in the spirit and by the spirit because you have other believers that see what you're doing and call you to those works. Number three, it keeps us sharp. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. And Romans 1, 12 says that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I'm giving you lots of scriptures because I want you to see these in action and that this matter to God. I feel like a lot of times as believers, we can kind of feel like this is not really one of the important things, that fellowship is like, I'm in just too busy of a season for it, so I'm gonna operate by these other things, but this one's kind of extra. 
but I would put it to you that fellowship is God's model for how we actually walk into these things. He didn't have people operating alone. He didn't have people going out by themselves. He had them doing it in fellowship. So four activities the early church did that we can see when we look at Acts is they devoted themselves to teaching, they devoted themselves to fellowship, they devoted themselves to the regular breaking of bread and prayer, and they devoted themselves to living out their faith publicly, which led to the adding of the number daily, those who were being saved. So let's break this down just a little bit. If you're in the modern church today, one of the common questions that people will have is, well, how do we know what we're supposed to do? How, why do we do the things that we do in the church? Um, if it really was just that we're fellowshipping in homes, in acts, why should we not be doing the same thing today? Well, again, these are principles, not necessarily this is a copy and paste model in today's world, but we see when they devoted themselves to teaching that that's something that we are meant to do in fellowship. That's part of living in fellowship is doing that with other believers, devoting yourself to teaching in a model like this, a discipleship class, but also in a place like groups where you get together. Not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a formal group. Groups are in thing, ministries that you find in churches or really organized ways for you to plug into that. But when we see that they did that, we see the importance to be able to learn together and to learn from each other, that there's going to be somebody who maybe has a picture of what the Lord is teaching that maybe that you haven't seen, and they can stir you up in that as you're walking through that. We see that they devoted themselves to fellowship, and we see that that is something that we're called to do today, that as we live out, we don't live in a hidden way, we don't cover it, but we make a point to live next to other people. And then that regular breaking of bread and prayer, do you guys have an idea of what that looks like today? I see you back there. <laughs> Okay, the breaking of bread really refers to communion. Now they did have meals together, so it's not that they didn't have that, but they made this a part of their lives that every, that every day that this is a practice they would have to worship, to pray, to have communion, and remember it was a centering activity that they remembered why they do what they do. And when we talk about unity, that's part of what centers us. If we remember the idea that we're not at the center, then I'm really not that offended by what you're doing because I also believe God's talking to you. And then all of this came into a very interesting framework that one commentary talked about the idea that you would see believers together in the early church so often that they were like birds of a feather. If you saw one, you were gonna see another one. But it wasn't this clicky sort of system that you might expect it to be because while they were living this way, they weren't living only off to themselves because they lived out their faith publicly. They didn't shy away from sharing it. And we see that the church exploded. They talked about it led to the adding of their number daily, those who were being saved, which is Acts 2, 47. And we see that the Lord brought that as they were faithful to do what the Lord called them to. And they didn't shy away from operating that way, that the Lord increased them. It is difficult to live within the framework of two commu true community, this koinonia kind of fellowship, without doing all four of these things. If you commit yourselves or recommit ourselves to the teaching, but we don't commit ourselves to fellowship, we're going to kind of be a well that we might feel like we're really deep, but we're not benefiting anyone else. So we see a model here that we can live by, and we realize all four aspects of these are important. We also realize that when we live in fellowship, we go beyond a transactional type of living to a relational type of living, because when I'm maybe serving with Bobby. If I have no relationship with Bobby, we're serving the kingdom, but we're not really in fellowship because there's no relationship there. We see that God has called us to living out that love 
that he gave us. And then we will find it very difficult to accomplish the Great Commission. And do you, does anybody know what the Great Commission is? So the Great Commission is God authorized and commanded me to commission you to go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. I'll be with you as you do this day after day after day right up to the end of the age. And I love that transi translation because if you grew up reading the Great Commission, sometimes you can kind of go through it without really thinking through what it's talking about. But we are called to do something big, and we're called to do that in fellowship. Something that I, as I was studying this out, that I loved is um, if I go back to the ways that this word koinonia is translated, we can kind of understand fellowship, we can kind of understand sharing or participation, but one of the places that it's used as contribution is in Romans 15, 26, and it refers to it as a contribution to the poor. Now this stood out to me from all the other ways that this word is used because it kind of was an odd place for it to be used to me. So studying it out, again, I highly recommend you go through the How to Study the Bible um, course, the class, if you aren't familiar with how to do this, but I was looking through people who have studied this extensively, and Thayer's Greek lexicon says this, that this was an, an exhibit or the embodiment and proof of fellowship by the fact that they were able to contribute to the poor spoke to the fact that they were in fellowship because they weren't alone. I, I can't give a million dollars somewhere but when I'm in fellowship and with a group of other people, we're empowered to do something much bigger, and that's proof to our fellowship. So fellowship has teeth. It's something that there's a proof of, there's evidence of as we go out. What marks your life? When we talked about those, those three signs, do you see those things in the early church? We do. Do we see them now? And we should be operating by those where there's that vision that's present there is that giving that is present and there's that unity that is present. So Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's one of the major things that we need to do, that we're to be recognized by the world as disciples through the very way that we live life with and treat our fellow believers. And this radical type of love sets us apart and it marks us as Christians. So this is not just something that is a good idea to do. It's something that's essential to us actually walking out what we're called to do. And so we do it by the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts 2, and we do it through the empowerment of grace, which will let me hand it over to you. You ready? It's your turn. Okay, okay. The old apostle John wrote the Gospel of John from Ephesus in Route AD 85. He listed some awesome facts about Jesus in the first 18 verses of his Gospel, such as he was in the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. He created and his life was light to men. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He brought grace and truth to mankind. He made his Father known, and now is at his Father's side. When we get into this stuff, you're going to see just how great grace is. The Jewish people didn't understand grace. 
They would only tie, they didn't see tying it to Jesus, only to human works. Many Jews at the time of Jesus believed that if you obeyed the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders, then God would favor you. The Pharisees and scribes strongly pushed living according to traditions. At times, traditions had more authority than the law of Moses. Jesus encountered one of these tr traditions in Mark 7. Jesus was now 28 months into his ministry. The Pharisees and scribes, better known as lawyers, confronted Jesus and told him, your disciples are defiled according to the tradition of the elders because they didn't clean their hands before they ate. In verse 14, Jesus tells them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going in him can defile him, but the things that come out of the person are what defile him. Thus, Jesus told the audience that this tradition was in error. Adam and Eve sinned. God would not fellowship with human beings, sinful human beings. Grace occurred because Father offered up his obedient son to die as a perfect sacrifice for us. In Hebrews 9.22, we are told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And in Hebrews 10, 12, verses 12 and 14, we are told that Jesus' single sacrifice for sins has perfected us. Charis is a Greek word, Corne Greek, means common Greek. Um, it's found at least 123 times in New Testament, depending on what text the New Testament uses. P Paul, the author of 13 books, uses it, that word, at the beginning of each of his letters. And it's a greeting to a Gentile audience. And it means high in God's favor to you. Isn't that easy? And then he ends each of his letters with grace again. And this one means farewell and God's favor go with you. The great theological meaning of the word grace in the New Testament can be broken down into three parts. The first part is God's. You see there in the black. A marvelous passage is found in Revelation 4.8. It is one of my favorite that helps us understand God the Father better. This verse has been endlessly repeated around the throne of God by the four living creatures since the time they were created. They continually say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was, is, and is to come. Since this, this sentence is repeated endlessly, in God's presence, then surely the wording must mean really meaningful. This verse means at least the following. I've got it written up there. God is perfect holiness. God is the supreme ruler and protector of the universe. God is all-knowing and is everywhere at the same time. God is all-powerful. He creates and he sustains. God is eternal. He had no beginning and he will have no end. Amen. The second part of the definition is free and undeserved favor. God's favor cannot be bought or earned. 
It doesn't matter how much merit, skills, talent, money, labor we bring to the table. Everyone will always be undeserving of God's favor now and for all eternity. There are two settings that God's favor and gifts work in. They are in the arena of living a born-again life for the Lord in a physical body. I believe everybody in here fits that one. And then the second one is um, when they get a glorified body. The last part of the definition is critical. The words to the definition are can be imparted to anyone but only through Christ. God's free and undeserved favor can be given to anyone. But there's only one way to get God's favor. And that way is through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 16, 23, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. I want to share with you one of my favorite passages. Jesus is less than six months from being crucified. He has been ministering around 34 months. It's, the time is probably late October, A.D. 29. The Jewish leaders are wanting Jesus dead now. I will paraphrase John 8, verses 21 and 24. And it says, Jesus says, I'm going away, and each of you will seek me, and each of you will die in your sin. I told all of you that you will die in your sins for you if you do not believe that I am. You will die in your sins. Now let's talk, cover some New Testament verses that deal with the idea of grace. The first verse I wanted to cover is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Notice what it says. That by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you see it? Because of God's free and undeserved favor imparted to Paul through Christ, he could say, I am what I am. I am different now because of God's grace. God is with me. God works through me. Another interesting verse is found in Acts 15, verse 11. It says, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Whose grace? That's right. Jesus is needed in grace. Without Jesus, there is no grace. How about Galatians 1.3? Remember, this is Paul's first book that he wrote, probably in the year A.D. 48. It says, Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Each of them are involved in the concept of grace. Paul has been writing for 17 years now. His last book was 2 Timothy, and most likely it was written around A.D. 65. Paul's last use of the word grace is found in chapter 4, verse 22. He says, Grace be with you. God's free and undeserved favor imparted only through Christ be with you. Romans 6, 14 shouts, For sin shall have not dominion over you, since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. We are now living under the new covenant in Christ. The error is called grace. Ephesians 2.8 profoundly says, For grace are you saved through faith. 
Without grace, there is no possibility of salvation. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16 it says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort and hope came to us through what the Father and Son did. The Father gave up the Son, and the Son died an awful death but arose. Please take note of Romans 8.32. It says, He that did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, will God not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Oh, what a favor. I hope this sampling of several verses helps you see why the word grace is used all the time. It changes everything. We now have favor with God. Let's discuss what God's favor does presently for believers living in a, for the Lord in a physical body. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned, three things happened. One, Satan was revealed as the enemy of all mankind. He hates us with the passion. Two, sin separated man from God because God won't fellowship with sin. Three, physical death was inter introduced and made a reality. Satan thought he won. The concept of grace was foreign to Satan at the time of the fall. But the story of grace came through Jesus and it changed the outcome. God gave up his only begotten sinless son so that he could favor us now and forever. God's free and undeserved favor can be seen all around us today. He cares for us. He answers prayers. He blesses us with so many promises found in the Bible, like physical healing. John 10.10 10 says it all. Jesus came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I want to briefly talk about three favors that believers can experience. There are so many more. One is the Holy Spirit can provide, can, can provide guidance, comfort, and strength. Two, we have been given seven spiritual weapons to help us withstand Satan in spiritual warfare. Some of these weapons are offensive, some are defensive, and some are both. They are listed in Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. Lastly, we have authority in Jesus' name to combat evil spirits that we will encounter, given by battle orders by Satan to his rulers. Down here, I've got a diagram. The word, Greek word rulers is Archie. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. The word beginning in those two verses is Archie. It means first, beginning. Also, in the Greek, the word means ruler. So the proper, probably most, uh, best way to say it is first rulers or chief rulers. That is his first line of command. Anywhere you read in the scripture, you will always see the word ruler before you will see the word authority. That's because... Chain of command is the rulers the first. Rulers are probably the ones that also ruled before they were fell, because they were one of the th one third of the angels that fell. They probably had a place in, of importance in God's setting before the fall. 
Ephesians 6.12 and Colossians 2.15 um, will show you this command, but there are, um, I think there's actually seven verses that will show that command. The second order of the supervisory chain is, the Greek word is exousia, and it means authority. There are many more authorities in the world today than there are chief rulers. And uh, with the, these supervisors, if you, if you saw it military, you, Satan would represent the four-star general. Then you, all your rulers would be your first-star generals, stuff like that. And then if you go to your uh, um, authorities, you'd probably see um, colonels, lieutenant colonels, majors, whatever, all the way down to second lieutenant. And then you have, after that, the evil spirits that are worker bees and etc. Doesn't his favor and kindness show us that he's on our side? We have been born again. We have eternal life now in this physical body. But the gulf between man and God, the gulf between the man and God has a bridge over it, and that bridge name is Jesus. What does it mean to have God's favor? It is to have God on your side if you're following his will. In Romans 8, 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter who's against you if God is for you, if he is on your side. The Old Testament tells us of many times where Israel would only fight an enemy if a prophet told them that God was on their side. If he was, they won. If he wasn't, they lost. Don't you just love Joshua 1.9? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He is on our side. He is for us. He is with us. And God's grace did it. Because God is everywhere, people of this world experience many of his favors. For example, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. I want to mention just three situations where unbelievers are presently missing God's favor on earth. One, although I can mention many more. One, will God hear and answer unbelievers' prayers when they refuse to believe that Jesus died for their sins and refuse to accept him as their Lord and Savior? Two, how can an unbeliever fight against evil spirits that cause confusion, bitterness, deception, meanness, anger, ignorance, boredom, depression, and spiritual blindness. Three, how can unbelievers experience abundant life? When talking about God's favor, we must also address the future. Eternal life happens when we are born again, but it's also for eternity. For those who died without Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they will experience more than just God's disfavor. They will experience judgment. Right now, God continues to draw men and women to himself, but once death happens, the opportunity is gone. And at the great white throne judgment, billions of evil spirits and the spirits of unbelieving humans will be thrown into the lake of fire. The believers will be there because they will die in their sins, just like Jesus said they would in John 8. Remember, grace that we accepted by making Jesus Lord and our Savior saved us from the lake of fire. What a great favor.
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-9, through 9, we have one of the greatest passages on eternal damnation. There are many other passages that deal with this subject. The punishment will be fair, and I will give you some thoughts on the lake of fire and what they will be like. And I'm just going to read them from, you can see they're in red up there. <laughs> this punishment will be forever. Once in, you're always in. Two, this punishment will separate those in the lake of fire from ever, forever from God. God will never think of them again. Three, this punishment will cause those in the lake of fire to replace all, replay all the chances they had to accept Jesus. They will hate their friends forever because they didn't witness hard enough or didn't witness at all. Four, this punishment will cause them to burn yet not be consumed. The hurting pain of their spirit body, which is not glorified, will be awful. And five, this punishment will cause them to see, never see, never touch, never hear another spirit ever again. Total darkness will cause blindness, although there are some that think the bright fire from lake of fire will cause it. They won't touch anyone because they'll be separated far enough away from each other. They won't hear anyone because of the distance they are separated, and the only voice they will hear is their own loud screaming. They will taste and smell sulfur forever. Perfect eternal punishment is one of the summaries for the lake of fire. But I can say I have never heard a scarier story. Or should I title this discussion, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that Jonathan Edwards preached in 1741? It led to a great spiritual awakening. Lastly, I want to discuss some of God's favors for believers like us once we get a glorified body. We talk about this life now, and I'm probably the oldest one in here by far, but uh, let's say we all get 100 years, okay? So some of you are pretty close to it, like me. Maybe some are not so close. Then think about 100 trillion years. Compare them. We spend a lot of energy on this life, and that's great, because it's a springboard to eternity in the future. But I want you to see what Paul says about the future, too. Eternal life starts with this body. When you're saved, you're born again in this fleshly body. The spirit man is made new. The mind needs to be daily um, renewed. The body is aging quickly. It needs to be crucified daily, and all someday will need a new body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, we are told, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. The flesh will age until it dies. We need a new body to live in, that will last forever or we will be miserable. In Romans 8, 18, it says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed in us. The future will be so awesome. There is so much to be experienced in the future because we have been born again. Many of God's favors from eternal life have not yet been experienced. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, 
nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has given us many hints in the Bible. God definitely wants us to know some things that await us. That is one reason prophecy is given. The glorified body for believers starts when the rapture happens, which is before the Antichrist signs the seven-year peace treaty with Israel. When the rapture happens, all Old Testament saints and all New Testament saints who have fallen asleep will meet Jesus in the air. And then all Christians who are alive will meet Jesus in the air. Then everyone will follow Jesus to the third heaven in our new glorified body. A body that is like Jesus, but not identical. What an eternal favor from God. Revelation 4.1 speaks of the rapture. Remember, John represents both past and present believers. And then believers are called the 24 elders in verse 4. I don't know what words you're going to speak first when you get to third heaven. I don't know who you're going to look up first. I think I'm going to look up my mom. But I'll tell you this, 100%, you're going to say these words one day. Want to hear the words? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they continue to exist and were created. That's found in Revelations 4, verse 11. 4, 11. The future will be such wonderful words of comfort that are true forever. We will enjoy the marvelous fellowship with the Trinity and the host of worshipers that includes so many angels, the bride of Christ, and billions of people who believed in Jesus during the millennium. And at the great white throne judgment, they were told that they get to live on new earth in the flesh forever. God is never, never beaten. When Satan had that fall, when Adam and Eve fell, he thought it was all over. God's plan was for man to live on earth forever, and they're going to live on earth forever. Now, I want to finish with a few future favors. And uh, Revelation 21, 22, and John 14 are some references. Revelation 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. No more emotional, social, physical, or mental pain. This is a great favor for those in New Jerusalem and those living on the new earth, and it will last forever. All because of what the Father and Jesus did for us. The new earth will be unique and just made. It may not even be round. The moon and sun will be gone because the glory of the Lord will provide the light. The great phase eternal life shows us is favor. Not, it's because we get to live with him forever. We will be in a glorified body and we will live in New Jerusalem. Maybe I'll fly around the new earth that could be massively long and wide and square shaped and flat with some beautiful rolling hills and a few mountain peaks. And probably there will be many large lakes and so many colorful flowers and trees. It wouldn't surprise me if the new earth is 100,000 miles long and wide 
and less than 100 miles deep. Maybe I'll fly around the square city with walls that are 1,380 miles long on the east, west, north, and south side. And maybe I'll fly up a wall and see that it is also 1,380 miles tall. And if I fly around the city, the square city, I will encounter 12 gates. And each gate will be 345 miles from each other. And inside each gate, I will see that the walls are 72 yards thick. I've driven this right here. This, this is New Jerusalem. I'm, imagine you're out in space, outer space, and remember how they show from the ship, you get to see the circle, the moon, I mean the earth. You can even make out sometimes the continents. Imagine the earth looking like this from outer space. It's flat. It's 100 miles thick and it's 100,000 miles long. Very, very possible because New Jerusalem, which is right there, is going to light up the whole place. If there's gravity or other things taking place, then it tells me that the Earth has to be flat. But that's one projection. No one knows for sure. But he does tell you that the place is going to light up by him. The Trinity is going to light up the world. These right here are houses, these red little dots. And here's the city, and how tall it is, 1,380 miles. And that's actually uh, accurate. You'll see some of the translations will say 1,400, and others will say 1,500, but 1,380 is probably the most accurate distance. And I won't even bring up the likelihood of the New Earth expanding in size over time, as well as the population growing. I won't even talk about our mansions that are floating in the sky, high above New Jerusalem, or discuss what jobs we'll do on New Earth, or dialogue about what the new heaven will look like. What favor we have now in this fleshly body, and what favor awaits us when we gain a glorified body and mind. And in conclusion, in conclusion, I say to everyone from the bottom of my heart, grace be with you. When you start understanding what grace did, it's hard not to cry. If you've got a loved one that doesn't know Jesus, All right, thank you so much. Appreciate that. That was deep and went into eschatology a little bit there so that we understand grace here on earth and can't grace. Talk, can't talk without. Yeah, so that, yeah. You don't understand favor until you talk eschatology. Right. Eschatology is the study of end times, just so you know. And I am not a guru on eschatology, so yeah. But anyway, at least you get the chance to understand the importance of grace and what grace is is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's not just a simple death on the cross and then go, okay, yeah, now we can accept Christ, we can accept Christ and life will be great. And this is the reason for these classes to understand the 
depth of these things that are happening or that have happened concerning our lives, understanding the depth of salvation, not just to say, yeah, I'm saved, yippee, and I'm not going to try my best not to do bad things. Understand the depth of faith and how to live by faith and to grow in faith. Understand the depth of fellowship, that these are not just suggestions. You know, I suggest that you fellowship, that God actually expects fellowship out of the new believer and to understand that grace and truth came through Christ and so there was no grace prior to Christ if you messed up under the law that's it that's it there's no grace that is afforded but then Christ brings grace and so you get the depth of that and if you can get the depth of that in 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 your life and in you and you learn what God wants us to understand and know it builds on itself and you strengthen yourself as a believer. Amen? Okay, and any questions so far? Any questions of the four classes that we have had? Four, right? Okay, four topics. My wife's very literal. Thanks, Daniel. I, pre I appreciate that. Yes. Okay, the four topics. Yes, James. James? Yeah. Anybody else? Comments? Statements? Like my shirt? Yes, I do. Oh, no? Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to get somebody to say something. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, um, we'll end right here. So next week is going to be an awesome week. Power Duo Couple. And they're looking at me and smiling already because they know. Ah, there you go. He can help it. So he gave themselves up. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to be in here and they're going to be talking about love and <laughs> mercy. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And, and, and I would encourage you at this point, if the, you can see that there's so many seats here, if there's anybody that you know that would be blessed by coming to these classes, just remind them and say, hey, it's, it's, it's been great and I've taken a whole bunch of notes. And remember, this is just to get you on a path for you to get deeper. Go back into the scriptures. Like, I, I love what, what Gary did because if anything was flying over the top of your head, the idea is not to go, oh, well. The idea is to go, let me go search that deeper and go into the scriptures and see what God wants me to see. So the, the concept is not to just throw it away or go, that's kind of a little, I didn't get that, or I never talked about that, or my previous understanding was this, how come he's brought this in? The idea is not to just dismiss it, 
But the idea is to get deeper and have a Berean attitude, go back into the scriptures and see what that looks like. And like Ashley was pointing out, if you need tips on how to actually learn and study it, we did a class called How to Study the Bible. It's available on the discipleship uh, page on newsongpeople.com forward slash discipleship. And it'll give you the, the, the tools that you need on how to study the Bible and how to study even this uh, very subject of, of grace. Okay? All right, I'm going to pray and then we can all head out. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. I pray that every word that has come from your heart, the truth that comes from your word, will stay within our hearts and minds. May we think about it. May we meditate on it. And this was your call, even in Joshua 1.8, that we not let the word of the Lord depart from our hearts and our minds, but to meditate upon it. And so may we think on these things that we are learning. May we meditate on it. May we uh, continue to 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 muse. And, and as we do that, God, I know that you will continue to drop your truths in our hearts and you continue to expand our learning. I honor you because, God, I know this is a, a, a desire of your heart that we would be knowledgeable about the things concerning life. And you've said in your word, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. And I just pray that, God, we will be built up because we are seeking and desiring to know. Give us a heart to research, to find out, and to get deeper. We honor you and we praise you. And I pray for each and every single person here and the families represented that there's a blessing on their lives that comes only from you. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful day.